Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, Tuesday, December the 27th, 2022. Four more days left of the year. Uh, it's been quite a year, as most years are, I guess. Uh, a year increasingly less dominated by Donald Trump. An interesting piece today about um, Trump's quote-unquote, at least in The Guardian, moribund 2024 campaign. Um, borrowed from a piece from the New York in, uh, magazine Intelligencer from Olivia uh, Nazi, one of America's uh, very energetic, interesting young journalists, on Donald Trump, the final campaign for people watching, presenting Donald Trump as an old, sad, defeated man. Um, I wonder whether 2022 will be the year in which Trump was finally defeated. One man who offers a great moral compass on Trump and Trumpism and MAGA is my guest today, Pete Weiner. He's been on the show many times before. He's the um, author uh, of uh, an important book, uh, uh, The Death of Politics. Uh, he writes a daily column or monthly column, I'm sorry, for The Atlantic magazine, does a lot of other things. In 2020, he was on the show talking about uh, how his conservatism defined his uh, critique of Trump. Um, earlier this year, he was on talking about how a post-Trump America remains very sick and how we can improve its health. As I said, he's the author most recently of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic Under Trump. He's unashamedly moral and a religious man, and he's joining us um, Pete, uh, happy new year for Thank you. 2023. Has it been a, a happy year, 2022, Pete? We, we had one of your friends, co-conspirators, John Rausch, on the show recently talking about 2022. He is cautiously optimistic about 2022. He seems to think that it, it wasn't such a bad year after all. In, in your mind, uh, was 2022... Uh, a year in which we began to see the the shoots, if you like, of a new kind of morality in America. Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. It's it's always a uh, a pleasure. Yeah, I, I think uh, my view is is essentially similar to um, to John's um, in the United States. Um, talking about our, our our politics, our civic culture, our political culture. Um, I'd say certainly twenty twenty two was better than than previous years um, I, because I think that uh, we're reaching the, the the end of the Trump era, um, and I think that his madness is so undeniable. And combined with the fact that he is now perceived by a lot of people within the Republican Party as being a loser. Um, that there, the Republican Party is turning against him, certainly the Republican establishment, um, which had been with him for a half dozen years. And there was no line that Donald uh, Trump could cross, no boundary that he wouldn't transgress, that they wouldn't stay with him. And that's that's changed. Um, and, uh, and it's changed, I think, primarily because of the 2020 
22 midterm elections where Republicans thought that there was a so-called red wave uh, that would happen, that they would easily take control of of uh, of the House, maybe went up to you know, 30, 40 seats and take um, control of the Senate. And Democrats actually improved their position in the Senate and Republicans barely took 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 the House. And that was a real jolt to Republicans. Uh, and now, finally, they're breaking with him. They're breaking with him, I think, for insufficient reasons. They're doing it for utilitarian reasons. They're doing it because they think Donald Trump is now an obstacle to power. They're not doing it because of, of a moral awakening. And I think that's a problem. But breaking with Trump is uh, the uh, sine qua non toward healing in this country. And having the Republican Party turn against him is, 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 is really important. So that, I think, has been good. And beyond that... I would say liberal democracy had a good year. Um, the, what's happened in Ukraine has been in, inspiring to much of the world. Uh, Zelensky has become a heroic uh, figure. Uh, Russia has obviously um, been damaged. And I think liberal democracy, which seemed to be on the defensive on its back heels for many years, has now got a kind of confidence and, and on the offensive. And I think that that's, uh, that's good for, uh, for the human condition and for the world. You wrote an interesting piece um, for The Atlantic uh, on uh, Herschel Walker, the defeated Republican candidate, congressional uh, Senate candidate. Uh, you called him the perfect candidate for a fallen party. Um, I'm not sure if you chose that headline, but the idea of a fallen party, Pete, what does that mean? And was the rejection of uh, of Walker at the polls in uh, in 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 Georgia um, in November does that re represent, shall we say, a, a resurrected party? To choose another word, no, it doesn't it doesn't represent a resurrected party. What it represents um, is uh, a country um, in which not just Democrats but independents. Um, have risen up against the madness of MAGA world and said no. Um, the importance, I'd say the central importance of the 2022 election is that the most Trumpified, MAGAfied uh, candidates, the ones who were most in denial of reality, the ones that were peddling the wildest conspiracy theories in the effort to overthrow the, you know, the 2020 election, um, they were almost to a person defeated, um, whether you're talking about Senate, House, in some cases, governors and at the state legislative uh, level. The Republican Party nominated these these people. They, many of them were crazed. Um, but the Republican Party nominated them in part because Trump uh, basically anointed them, as he did in Georgia with with Herschel Walker. So the, the party, the primary voters didn't show any reasonable judgment. In fact, they, they, they showed themselves to be radicalized, nihilistic, and, um, and a threat to the republic. But those candidates didn't win. The, the rest of the country said, no, sir, we're not going to um, uh, vote these people into office. They're too crazed. They're too dangerous. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're too, uh, too nihilistic. Um, and so that is essentially the, the, the message that was sent. Now, what we're seeing play out is what the Republican Party does in light of that rejection. And this may be what was necessary for 
the Republican Party, including Republican primary voters to say, you know what? Um, we tried to go down this road and it didn't work. It blew up in our face. So we've got to go a different route, a non-Trump route. Um, that doesn't mean it's it's a morally uh, awakened party or morally responsible party or that there aren't elements of the MAGA world, Trump world that still exist. But it does mean that there is a movement away from Donald Trump as an individual. There's just no question about that. And maybe some of the more pernicious elements of, uh, of his movement. Pete, you're talking about the Republican Party as if it's nothing to do with you, but I'm not sure how intimately involved you are today with Republican politics, but you have historically been, you've served in a number of Republican uh, administrations. You're clearly on the left, I guess the uh, evangelical left of the party. You wrote on the in for the Atlantic a, a month or two ago that the party itself is more MAGA than ever. What's happening, Pete, behind closed doors when McConnell meets with other senators? I mean, what, for example, is Marco Rubio saying? We don't hear very much about him. To me, he's one of the more interesting figures within the Republican Party. Are they beginning to acquire a moral voice, the kind of voice that you would encourage and, and represent? Yeah, it's, you know, in terms of what's happening behind closed doors, it, of course, depends on, on which doors that we're, we're talking about. If it, if it were a closed door with Mitch McConnell, like he would have been saying um, today what he's been saying for months and months, which is that, the Trumpification of the Republican Party is a danger and that the kind of candidates, what, what he referred to as candidate quality, really matters in races, particularly in Senate races, and that the candidates that were anointed by Donald Trump were terrible candidates and they would lose and they did lose. So I think behind the closed doors, if Mitch McConnell is there, is he's saying, I told you so. We need to distance ourselves from this guy and that movement and we need to get sane reasonably rational people to be the nominees for the Senate, for the presidency, for the House and so forth. Somebody like Marco Rubio um, is, is, a, is a really interesting figure because Rubio had fashioned himself as a reform conservative during the 2016 um, campaign. He was a fierce critic of Trump. He, he ran against Trump in the 2016 uh, primary. Um, and he and Ted Cruz were, were ferocious in their criticisms of Trump. But Marco Rubio was broken by Trump, as was Ted Cruz, as was almost every other Republican, with a very few exceptions like Mitt Romney, certainly Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. That's about it. Maybe a few, a few, few others. And so they accommodated themselves, suggested themselves, contorted themselves to embrace the MAGA message. And some did it more than others, but all of them moved away in some deep and I would say fundamental way from principles. Um, they showed themselves to be often cowards, um, hyper ambitious, let their ambitions get in the way of the good of, of, of the country. They said things they know, knew weren't true. They were advocating for a person that they must have known on some level was uh, not fit to be president of the United States. M Marco Rubio was in that camp. He was a weak uh, and spineless political figure um, who uh, adjusted, uh, you know, his sails to, to, to the prevailing to the prevailing winds. And now that the winds are seem to be shifting, he'll adjust to to them. And so will 
pretty much everybody else. But we don't know yet exactly where those winds are headed. Um, and so they, they're going to attack one way and they're going to attack another, attack another uh, until they can figure out you know, where they where they can be in a in a place that that keeps them safe and, and keeps them uh, in um, in in office. When I wrote that piece in The Atlantic uh, about a fallen party, I mean, I meant it meant it was fallen in the sense of philosophically and morally uh, because it was nominating these people like like Herschel Walker and Carrie Lake. Uh, and, you know, you can go through the entire the entire. I mean, and then Pete. Jumping in here, I mean, the logical question is, firstly, are you still a Republican? And if so, why? Why not just, you know, sometimes parties change. That's the nature of things. Um, the Republican Party today in 2022 or 2023 is different from the Republican Party right. you were born into. Why not just leave the party? No, I have effectively uh, left the party. I wrote actually a piece in, I think, 2018 in the New York Times that said I no longer call myself an evangelical, though I'm still a Christian, and I no longer consider myself a Republican, though I still consider myself a conservative. Um, I broke with the Republican Party essentially when it embraced uh, Donald Trump. Again, not uh, I didn't break philosophically from being conservative, but to me, the Republican Party uh, is, a, is an instrumentality. It's a vehicle to, as political parties are, to advance certain views and, and, and convictions and principles and ideologies. And I think the Republican Party has gone off the deep end. And I think it's become the most pernicious and dangerous political party in my lifetime in the United States. Um, and so I don't defend the Republican Party. I've been one of its leading critics. And I think that the Republican Party has wandered away from its best principles. Never been a perfect party by any means, but um, but I think it's 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 really gone in dangerous directions. I voted for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, I did so unapologetically. I consider probably the most important presidential vote that I've ever cast. Biden and I aren't uh, ideologically in sync all the time, for sure. Uh, but I just felt like if Donald Trump had won a second term, that would have been a threat to the United States, unlike um, any that, that we faced um, faced before. So I don't pretend to defend the Republican Party. If the Republican Party returns to sanity and begins to embody principles that I think make sense um, and that advance the common good and encourage human flourishing, then I'm fine to, and happy to come to come back. But as long as it's it's in its current state, no way. You mentioned Kinzinger and uh, Cheney. Um, I'm guessing one or both might run. D doesn't the Republican Party need somebody like um, Pete Weiner as the conscience of the party? Don't, don't you need to re-involve yourself to support a Cheney or a Kinzinger or even conceivably, I guess, a, a resurrected Rubio? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, if if if, if Liz uh, Cheney ran, um, I I would I'm sure uh, write favorably for her and speak favorably for her. I have during this entire era since the 2020 election, when I think she showed you know tremendous uh, political courage. I mean, she basically gave up her career in Congress. She could well have been Speaker of the House, and um, 
but she said no she wasn't going to go along with with his attack on democracy and i think she deserves a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of credit and if the republican party were in the image of liz cheney i'd certainly feel much more comfortable than i do if it's in the image of of um of donald trump i mean i i hope i have something to contribute to the to the Republican Party, the conservative cause, by speaking out the the the, the way I have, uh, I think a fair reading of the historical record will be that a lot of the concerns that those of us who are so-called never Trumpers, Republican never Trumpers, past Republican uh, who are never Trumpers, and conservatives who are never Trumpers, were actually right. That history has has validated our concerns and vindicated our judgment. In fact, a lot of people who have defended Trump consistently for the last half dozen years are now turning against him and making many of the arguments that we've been making for, for a half dozen years. But they're contorting themselves, trying to justify why they're now part of the so-called resistance um, and uh, trying to rationalize why they didn't speak out earlier or didn't see this um, so sooner. But if there's... If the Republican Party is going to get better, is going to be resurrected, I think former Republicans like me should should be a part of that, and others should be a part of it too, because the Republican Party is one of the two major parties in the United States, and if it remains as corrupted as it's been, uh, that is really a threat to 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 the uh, to the country as a whole. Yeah, and I think it's in the interest of the the Democrats as well. Um, we did a show recently with Catherine Stewart. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She's a great critic of religious, what she calls religious nationalism. She talks about the power worshippers. She has a book out called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She believes in 2022 that what, you, what she calls the religious nationalists or evangelicals actually became more powerful. You noted earlier, Pete, that you're not evangelical, um, but you had a, an interesting exchange about opposing Trump as an evangelical conservative. I'm not sure if those are your words. You write extensively about religion. You had a, a piece just before Christmas in the New York Times about why Jesus loves friendship. Um, are you in the, the Stuart camp believing that any time, and I, maybe I'm being unfair to her, so I can't put words into her mouth, but my sense of her position is that Anytime the church is involved in politics, it's a bad thing. Yeah, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go quite that far. I, maybe the way I would describe it is: is there an intersection between faith and and politics and public life? And I'd say yes, there there should be um, in limited conditions at certain times, certain eras. Why do I think that's the case? Partly because I think faith properly understood, certainly the Christian faith, and that's the faith of which I'm a part of. I would say that being a person of the Christian faith is central to, to who, who I am. But at the core of, of that faith is a belief in justice. Now, that's not all, all that, that, the, the, that the Christian faith is about, but that's a key component of it. Justice matters because justice has to do with uh, what is objectively true and right and a just society is, is, is a society that protects human dignity and encourages human flourishing. And one of the arenas and domains in human life where that plays out is in politics. And when political systems and political governments 
go bad, there can be tremendous human um, horrors and human hardships that follow, whether you're talking about the Nazi regime or the Gulag or, or North Korea, you, 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 you name it. And there are moments in which when faith and politics intersects, great good can come out of it. The abolitionist movement uh, in, in, in the United States, um, obviously during the Civil War in the 1860s, um, and, uh, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin and the, and the, the ministers that spoke up, particularly almost exclusively in the North, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. You can't really read a Martin Luther King Jr. speech without seeing the, the, the direct references and tremendous symbolism of faith. Faith was the piston of, of that engine of the civil rights movement. Um, and there have been other movements, um, places like the International Justice Mission, which uh, is going around the world, uh, in, in stopping sexual slavery and, and, and other issues. So I think faith at its best can, can, um, can help advance the human good of which politics is, is, uh, is part of it. Having said that, it's also true throughout history, and we've certainly seen it recently during, I would say, the Trump era, when people of faith and churches get involved in politics and it becomes weaponized um, and, uh, and it makes our politics worse, not better. It creates divisions um, and it can also put politics into the realm of children of light versus the children of darkness. Uh, and be impediments to to the compromise that that is necessary in in democracy. And then it does it, when when often people of faith get involved in politics, they do tremendous damage to the witness of that faith because people can see what's playing out among a lot of American evangelicals during the Trump era and say this is a moral freak show. Why on earth would I want to be a part of that? And they see the hypocrisy of people who who were evangelical and Christian voices who, who argued the, about the centrality and importance of character and political leaders during the Bill Clinton presidency. And then when Donald Trump, whose corruptions are borderless and makes Bill Clinton look like a Boy Scout, they look the other way and they supported him. They say, look, this is just a game. It's just a power game. So it's, it's really, Andrew, I'd say it's a mixed bag. Yeah, so when you're talking about a power game, um, it's interesting that Stuart's book's called The Power Worshippers. Yeah. The Bible, of course, uh, and you don't need me to tell you this, Pete, is full of metaphor stories yep. about stories which are supposed to be parables and metaphors of, of, of being good or of learning. Is it conceivable that Trump could be seen as, as, a, as a test? I mean, do you see him as a test for yourself? Do you see yourself as a morally stronger, more virtuous person uh, in 20, late 2022 than you were, uh, shall we say, in 2016 or 2015 before we, we began to confront the reality of a, a Trump presidency. And in that sense, in, in an overall scheme of things, might it be seen as a good thing? Yeah, in terms of how I view myself, I don't I don't really view myself as better or worse today than I was six, seven, eight years ago or pre-Trump era. I mean, I've got to tell you, Andrew, this my stance against Trump was one of the most obvious political positions I've ever taken. It seemed so immediately clear to me 
what he was, the threat that he posed, the madness that he embodied, um, that even though there was a, you know, a cost, of course, on some level for me to take the stand I did and to have done it so early and so vocally and, and, and to continue it, which, which I really have, because I thought it was a really important issue for the country. Um, but, um, let me put it this way. I think if you would have asked the, you 20 people who throughout my life knew me best and loved me most and said, where would I be in this Trump era, given how it unfolded? I think those people, the ones that really do know me best uh, and, and, and uh, understand me most, uh, would not be surprised that I ended up where I where I did. And if I'd have ended up in a different position than, than I did, they would have been disappointed um, in, in me. And mostly I would have been disappointed in, in my, um, in myself. So I suppose he, I mean, in a, in, a, in a sense, I agree with you. I think Trump was a test for a lot of, uh, a lot of people. I think a lot of people on the American right and the Republican party failed that test miserably. And, um, uh, but not everybody did. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was a test for the for the country, and I think the country's more or less gotten through it. But 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 uh, we didn't have a lot a, a, a much of a margin for uh, for error. We may have got through it. We may not. According to Stuart, we haven't. I mean, she she referred to, and we haven't mentioned Ron DeSantis yet. I'm sure you have some opinions, strong opinions, one way or the other on him. His new ad or this eighth day ad, which presents DeSantis as the arm or the symbol of God of some way. Uh, what, what do you make of DeSantis, in particular, Pete, his use of religious language, of metaphor, of imagery? Yeah, that use of religious language in that ad that, that you were referring to uh, was, was, was offensive. Um, and it shows you um, <clears throat> just how extreme these folks who are of a certain mindset are and, and really how they read the Republican Party, the base of the Republican Party. I'm, not, I'm sort of assuming that DeSantis doesn't really believe all of that stuff. Uh, I don't think he's an irrational person. I think he's a hyper ambitious person. And I think he's making an assessment of what has resonance with the base of the party, just like a lot of other figures uh, are. And they're, <coughs> excuse me, and they're, they're, uh, tailoring their message to to um, what they think will will uh, make them popular. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a culture warrior. Uh, that's how he's um, presented himself. If, he, if Donald Trump does, in fact, run in 2024, he's declared that he's going to. But as you alluded to earlier, it's a pretty moribund campaign. But if it turns out to be a Trump DeSantis race with others, I actually think that DeSantis will, in some respects, try to go to Trump's right on cultural war issues, particularly on vaccines and the uh, and the pandemic. Um, <coughs> excuse me. More broadly, in terms of my view of, of DeSantis, I'm not a, I'm not a fan um, because I think he is unprincipled uh, and and I think he, he would go to a lot of places uh, that uh, that he ought not to. Having having said that, I don't think that he's a sociopath like Donald Trump is. And I don't think he poses nearly the, the threat to the to American democracy in a fundamental way that that, that Trump. Yeah, I, I take your point, Pete. But you worked in three Republican administrations: Reagan, 
George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, they were all in their own way culture warriors, perhaps some more than others, especially Reagan. How is, I don't really understand how DeSantis is particularly different, for better or worse, than either of those three men. They were all focused on um, realizing the presidency of, of becoming power, uh, of, of, of acquiring power. They did. I mean, what, what's the difference between him and Reagan and the two Bushes? I think just the just the the the, the recul recklessness and the disposition and, and 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 the attack on on truth and and in the case of of vaccines of science. Look, the, the Republican Party is just a very different party than it was under Reagan and the two and the two Bushes. There's just no question because temperamentally, dispositionally, Reagan and the two Bushes were profoundly different than Donald Trump, and it's. It is a Trumpified party. That doesn't mean that Trump is going to be the leader of it in 2024, but it means that those sensibilities are Trumpian. And um, I, I just think that if you if you look at the kind of figure that Ronald Reagan was, um, Ronald Reagan was uh, was a man of personal grace. He almost never uh, said things that were personal attacks. Uh, on 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 other uh, opponents, he he was more personally attacked much more than he he attacked in kind. Both Bushes and Reagan were individuals of 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 of, of dignity. I do think that the term culture war, and I used it, and one needs to be careful in how you use it. One, for example, a person could uh, could be so called pro life, believe that the abortion is the taking of an innocent human life. That can be a deep uh, and honest conviction. And if you stand up for that conviction, then if you're a person who's so-called pro-choice, who doesn't view it the same way, then you say, well, the person who's pro-life is a culture warrior. And then you begin to ascribe bad motives to those people. You say, well, they're running on their issue because they want to divide the country along cultural lines. Now, they may be doing that, but they may also have authentic views uh, that they're trying to advance, that they believe are, are the correct views, the correct moral views, the correct social or cultural views. Um, and so each side does that, right? Which is if somebody is taking a position that is different than yours, you begin almost naturally to think less of them and often to impugn their motives and their, and their character rather than saying, you know, they actually have a different hierarchy of values. They're, they have a different, different, different assessment. But I think if you compare uh, the two Bushes and, and Reagan to Donald Trump and the party that Donald Trump has created, and now the, the many Trumps that have emerged, there's just a huge, a, a, a huge, um, a huge difference. Uh, and I think that uh, that the DeSantis is is more unprincipled, from what I can tell, yeah. than. Any of those people that uh, you name. Let me say one other thing about Ron DeSantis, because he's pretty much the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year for the Republican Party, for a lot of political prognosticators um, that they think he's the he's the main threat to Trump, that he's the favorite to win the nomination. I've been around politics enough, been in enough presidential campaigns to know that it takes a little bit of time to see how these people do when they're yeah. actually in the in the arena. A lot of people look pretty good on paper um, before. Uh, and, but a lot of front runners for presidential uh, races, President Giuliani, President Fred Thompson. Yeah, President Giuliani is the, is the classic. By the way, uh, I'm not sure if you're thinking or working on a new book, Pete, but I, I would be fascinated with a book by you explaining how, how and why 
Reagan, the two Bushes, maybe, you know, the, the Gene Patricks and Jack Kemp's and, um, uh, and uh, William Bennett's of the world, how they're different, how there is this kind of firewall between them and Nixon. It's a really interesting uh, question. Let's, uh, let's jump to 2023. Um, you're a man of God, so I'm not going to ask you to predict 2023, but what would you like to see? What, what are you hoping for? in 2023 or within you've mentioned you're not particularly optimistic that the republican party can suddenly become moral overnight would you like to see a third party would you like to see a, a shift within the democrats to the center what can make america a more moral place in in pete wayner's uh, mind or heart perhaps or yeah. soul even yeah yeah well, politically, since we're on that on that topic, um, I'd say there are several things in, in 2023 that, that that I'd love to see. One would be that the Republican Party continue to distance itself from Donald Trump, that it essentially purge itself um, of him. I, I wish uh, and I hope that it turns on Trump for the right reasons, which is that this person was a moral affront, an affront to the Constitution, an affront... Um, to deep uh, and honorable uh, principles uh, that this country at its best stand for. I don't expect that will happen. I think the best that I can hope for that realistically is that they'll just turn on him because they think he's a loser. But that's okay, too. I think we've got to remove that thorn from the side of, of America, that thorn in the person of Donald Trump. However we do it, it's got to be done. Um I would hope that the Democratic Party, um, that it, it checks its, its most progressive left-wing impulses, both because I think that's a danger to the country. I also think that if it doesn't do that, it makes it harder to, to, uh, to win uh, a national election. And if Donald Trump somehow wins the nomination in 2024, which is possible for the Republican Party, the main task will be for the Democratic Party and the Democratic nominee, whether it's Biden or anybody else, to 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 defeat him. And if the Democratic Party goes hard left on cultural issues, uh, we've seen this recently. We've seen it over time. It's vulnerable, and it, it'll it'll uh, it'll it'll lose elections. Beyond that, if we could nudge the country in the direction of 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 healing, of of greater harmony turn the temperature down in our politics, move a little bit more toward understanding uh, each other, um, seeing compromise. We saw elements of compromise actually during 2022. The Joe Biden's legislative achievements were actually pretty impressive, given both how divided the country is generally and how divided Congress was. But he, he got through um, you know, several important legislative packages where he got Republican support. So turn the temperature down in our in our uh, in our politics. I've believed that the one of the main threats in this decade of the 2020s, as it relates to this country, is the assault on on truth and reality that we saw um, during the Trump era. And um, to to the extent that we can recover that, um, defend truth, believe in truth, uh, and are able to. Um, have some agreement about what objective truth and reality is. I think that's, you know, that's a that's a pretty um, 
pretty big uh, thing too. So if those things happened in in this country, um, it 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 would be um, it would be good for uh, for it, and I think for the wider world.